Hey, good morning, guys. Sorry you didn't hear the little video that was supposed to be a cue that we're transitioning to our time of uh, teaching here this morning. I know I see a lot of new faces, so I'll introduce myself again and say my name's Justin, one of the pastors, and this sounds really bad. All right, we're going to figure it out. I um, want to welcome you guys again, especially anyone who's new here, and, and, and applaud you guys for making it through the marathon traffic. Anyone get stuck? Yeah, not so much fun, but you did it, so thanks for making the effort to be here. The real question is, did anyone run the marathon and now you're actually here? It's happened before, but I guess not in this case. So, I do want to welcome one kind of new person. Uh, we know that the Bible says when you're married, two become one. And so in one sense, we've got a new person here in James. James and Shelby got married a few weekends ago, so happy for you guys. I want to uh, reiterate what Jenny said earlier, too, and just encourage you guys sometime during, it really works good to do it during the teaching. Like when you get bored when I'm talking, do the connection card then. That's like a perfect time to do it. Let us know a little bit about yourself. And I want to also let you know that hopefully, we're going to figure out a way to do it depending on the weather. Um, afterward, what we're going to do is for any, any of you that aren't involved in a Midtown community, like, like Sean and Casey and Macy just spoke about, um, we want to invite you to come meet all the other Midtown communities. You'll hear us refer to them as MCs. We want you to meet all the other MC leaders. It's just a chance for kind of have a meet and greet. So weather permitting, under the little basketball court, there's like an awning. So even if it's raining, we can get under there and it won't rain on us. We're going to have some pizza for anyone who's new. If you're already connected in a Midtown community, you can't have any pizza. It's, it's just for those that are new, all right? So that's our way to try to give a chance for you. Sometimes it helps if you meet the leaders, kind of get to know someone before you just kind of jump into a group blindly. And so hope that if you're not connected to Midtown Community or if you're not connected to Midtown College, because their leaders will be out there as well, join us in the basketball courts, weather permitting. Sound good? Well, if you've been with us for the first uh, couple of weeks of this year, we've been doing a book, the book of Malachi. And one of the things that I both love and hate about the way we generally teach the Bible at Midtown is we generally go through books. We'll do, we'll do seasons where we'll do like a, a series on a particular topic for four or five weeks. But most of the time throughout the course of the year, we actually teach books. And it's kind of a love-hate thing. The part that's hard about it is it, it forces you to teach some pretty hard passages that if you were just doing selectively, you could just kind of pick and choose and you could avoid them, Right. And so today is one such passage that's, that's, that's pretty difficult. It's hard to, to read and to, and to take in. As we looked at Malachi, we said that Malachi has a lot of hard things to say to the people of Israel at that time. And Jake did a great job the, the first week. Unfortunately, we didn't get it recorded on the podcast. There was an error, so you won't be able to hear it. But he said that the very first thing that God says in the book of Malachi is he reminds them that he loves them. And they ask, well, how have you loved us? And he says, I've loved you because I've given you mercy. I've not, I've not treated you as your sins deserve. But not only that, I've given you grace, that I've given you more than you deserve in the way that he had called out Israel and made Israel special. And then last week, we looked at the way that, that God challenged them that they weren't worshiping him well, that they were coming to him with blemished sacrifices when they were supposed to come to God with the best of their sacrifices, but they were coming with blemished ones. And not only that, it says that their heart was that they were really just giving sacrifices so that God would do something for them. So their worship really wasn't pure. They were worshiping to ask God to do something for them. And then when God wasn't coming through with what they thought they could get, they said, well, maybe this worship is worthless and we shouldn't worship God anyway. And so God confronted them on that. And today we're actually going to look at God that gives a warning very specifically to the priests so the spiritual leaders at that time, this is going to be a word specifically to them, and it's a very harsh warning that if we read it, I think if we're honest, we'd all find it a little bit offensive to think, man, God would say this. 
But maybe to prepare us to understand God's heart, I want to ask a few questions. And I, I want to give you a chance to raise your hand. Don't feel like you have to, but if you, if you like to participate that, that way, raise your hand, but you don't have to, particularly because they're going to get a little bit more personal on the questions. First question, how many of you have heard someone say that they're not interested in the church or they're not interested in following God because of some thing that they've seen a priest or a pastor or a church leader do something to harm them? You've heard that excuse before. Look around. It's almost everyone. Maybe a little more personal. How many of you have a friend or a family member, someone you know personally and love that doesn't want to follow God and doesn't want to connect with any church because they have personally been hurt by a pastor or a priest or a spiritual leader? Still a fair number of hands. And if you're willing, I'll ask an even more personal. Have you ever experienced something negative that was hurtful for you in the context of a church from a pastor or a priest or a spiritual leader? Have you ever personally experienced that? Yeah. I mean, almost every hand and every, every situation. And how do, you, how do you feel about that? Sad, probably angry, mad that these things would happen. I mean, it's come up most recently, even a few weeks ago, if you were following the news with Andy Savage, the pastor in Memphis, who turns out when he was in Houston, he had been inappropriate sexually with someone when he was a youth pastor. So it's been in the news uh, from an individual case like that to a whole case like you could study in the, in the Catholic Church and the systematic hiding of abuse that was taking place. It should grieve us, right? And it should probably get us a little mad, especially when the cost of it is what happens when the priest or leaders do this. It affects so many lives, and it should rightfully grieve us and make us angry. And that's what we're going to see in the heart of God as he speaks through the prophet Malachi. So in Malachi 2, his first five or four verses, he says, And now, you priests, this is a warning for you. If you do not listen... And you do not resolve to honor my name, says the Lord. I will send a curse on you, and I'll curse your blessings. Yes, I've already cursed them because you've not resolved to honor me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants, and I will smear on your faces dung from the festival sacrifices, and you will be carried off with it. And you will know that I've sent you this warning so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. Pretty harsh language that, that God is saying what he's going to do to the priests who are leading the people astray. Now, if you're with us last week or if you're following along in your Bible, you could just go back like about five or ten verses, and you'll see that the problem that was confronted last week was the people themselves were bringing defiled uh, animals to the sacrifice. And I told you they were, they were coming with wrong motives. They were presenting things not out of a true heart of worship, but to try to get something back from God. And God confronts them. But here he's speaking even harsher because it's the spiritual leaders that allowed for this to happen. Imagine what would have happened had they been the way that the priests were supposed to be. And these people bring them these sacrifices. And the very thing that God said through the prophet Malachi to the people, he said to them, why would you bring me this offering? Would you bring this before your governor? Would he accept it? Would you bring it before anyone else and they would accept it? What if the priest had actually said what God said through Malachi? What if they were the ones that when these offerings were made, they said, no, this doesn't fulfill the law. This isn't what God called us to do. This isn't how we're supposed to worship. I'm not going to accept this. Go back home. Get something proper to bring back and sacrifice to God. Everything would have been different. But God's particularly angry because the priests, the buck's supposed to stop with them, the spiritual leaders, the ones that are supposed to say no, they were the ones that were complicit 
They were the ones that were doing the exact same things. Now, you might be tempted to think, well, this sure sounds like an Old Testament God, that God would speak this harshly to spiritual leaders. But you read the New Testament, particularly read the way that Jesus spoke to the Pharisees, and you'll see some very similar language. Because Jesus spoke to so many people, but he was hardest on the Pharisees. Because like you guys witnessed when you raised your hands in the experience of grief to see that, that someone could lead someone else astray by their actions, cause someone to not want to walk with God, cause someone to not want to be part of the church. Jesus said the same thing to the Pharisees. You guys are actually preventing God's work from happening. And so he would say things like this in Matthew 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law, you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Same chapter, 23. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Or in John 8, when he's speaking again to the Pharisees and Sadducees, you belong to your father, the devil. You want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he's a liar and the father of all lies. Or think maybe most famously of Jesus when he would go into the temple in John chapter 2. It says, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at the table, exchanging money. And so he made a whip out of cords and drove them from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered their coins and the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he says, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus, like God the Father, was grieved when he would walk into a religious service. He'd walk into the temple and he'd see the very leaders that are supposed to be drawing people to God, manipulating people. And he's grieved by their pride. He's grieved by their materialism. He's grieved by their ritualistic nature. He's grieved by their exclusivism. He's grieved by their immorality. He's grieved by their injustice. And he turns over tables because they were the spiritual leaders and it grieved God's heart and it grieves Jesus' heart. That's why God would speak so harshly to these priests. I think generally speaking, and we'll see this as we kind of walk through the the next couple of verses, there's really two types of ways that, that our leaders and spiritual leaders can go wrong and thus take people with them the wrong way. One is with their life and the other is with their teaching. Just things that happen in their life, like think of things like sexual misconduct, the things that we've seen where where priests or pastors will take advantage of kids that are serving under them. Or the guy who stands up front and just acts like the godliest of guy and that you find out he's been having an affair with someone for, for years and years and years. I know many of you have experienced that. Or you think about the guys that, that are just up there doing things really just for their own financial benefit and preaching a prosperity gospel and they're stealing from the church. Or you think of just the self-righteousness of some spiritual leaders that are just so self-righteous, coming off like they're better than everyone else. Yet inside, they're full of hypocrisy. Their life, God hates that. Or it's their teaching. Tons of false teaching that can be out there. And generally, they kind of land in, in, in two camps. You can have like the legalistic type of teaching. And some of you grew under that. Maybe when you raised your hand earlier, you were grieving over some pastor or leader or minister that just was so legalistic and like the Pharisees just kept adding law to law to law to law. 
that condemns you and made you feel guilty. And then on the other hand, there's the license type of teaching where people now are actually afraid to confront sin and so they just adapt to the culture and whatever the culture says go. And so then they just start leading people astray by telling them everything's okay. Let's go with what our culture says. Like these things grieve God. I love the final story I'll tell from Jesus that's similar to what God said through Malachi was he was with the children. If you remember the passage, there's, there's times when children would come to Jesus and some people try to get the kids away and Jesus would say, no, let the children come to me. And Jesus is teaching and he's hanging out with kids. On one occasion, he's hanging out with the kids and he says this, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. I get more harsh, but here's Jesus with, with kids on his laps, and he's, he's only thinking about them. He's thinking, I love these kids, and if there was someone that would come in and take them away from me, veer them away from God, that would make me pretty angry. That would make me really sad, and that's how God feels about these priests and what they were doing. The next few verses actually talk about what the priests were supposed to be doing. At the very end of verse 4, he said he did want to renew his covenant with Levi. So what was this original covenant? What should the priests be doing? It says, my covenant with him was a covenant of life and peace, and I gave, the, I gave, to, uh, gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me, and he stood in awe of my name. True instruction was found in his mouth. Nothing false was found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from sin. For the lips of priests ought to preserve knowledge because he's a messenger of the Lord Almighty and people seek instruction from his mouth. Real briefly on this idea of this covenant with Levi, often God would make covenants with certain people. It's a little bit different from the major covenants that he made with, with Abraham and Moses and David. But you can find throughout some of the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Numbers and particularly Numbers 18, God makes a covenant with the tribe of, of Levi. So Moses and Aaron were from the tribe of Levi, so they were the very first priest, if you start reading the first few books of, uh, after Exodus. They were the first priest, and God had a special place for Levi, one of the 12 tribes, that they were going to be like the religious leaders, and they were going to care for people spiritually. And so they were actually the ones that when they went into the promised land, they didn't get their own land. What God said is, you're going to live among the people and be provided for by the people. And so these tithes and offerings that everyone would bring in at all these festivals the 10% of the tithe would then go toward providing for the Levites, that they could continue to do the ministry around the tabernacle, and later after the temple was built, the temple. And so God had this special covenant with this one tribe of Israel, and particularly through the line of Aaron, these priests. They were the spiritual leaders, and the covenant was pretty simple. Do the things that I've asked you to do as leaders, and it will go well. Don't do them, and it will not go well for you. And so he's saying here, this covenant now was broken. But here's what it was supposed to look like. And I'd like you, if you can, even just to write down these four things, because in this passage we see at least four things of what the priests were supposed to do. The first thing they were supposed to do is they were supposed to have reverence for God, a worship. If you go back to the verse, it says, this called for reverence, and he revered me, and he stood in awe of my name. I think this puts, points to motive. Like what God wanted was people who wouldn't just go through the ritualistic practices. I've got to do my job. This is my job. But someone whose heart was in it, who loved God with all their heart and was worshiping him. They revered God and feared him. They wanted to walk with him. Second, it says that they walked in uprightness. He says, he walked with me in peace and uprightness. This points to holiness, that what he wanted from priests was for them to exemplify a godly life. 
for they themselves to follow the law that they're going to then teach others to do it, that they themselves should be pure and holy, even repentant when they're not. Third thing you see is that they speak the truth. It says true instruction was found on his lips. The, the, the lips of priests ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth people should seek instruction. That The priests were supposed to know the book. They were supposed to know that part of the Old Testament at that time. Priests today, pastors today are supposed to know the Bible and to teach what is true. And then finally, turn many from sin. Like we're supposed to call people and turn them from sin. We're supposed to call sin what it is, call sin, sin, and call people from it. And more than just calling people away to something, what we're really supposed to do is point people to God. Point to God and ask them to follow him and to continue to grow in their life and continue to, to shed off sin and move more and more toward God. You might call it just simple discipleship. Like these are the four things that the priests were supposed to do. Reverence for God, walking in uprightness, speaking the truth, and turning people from sin. Now, if you were to read the rest of the Old Testament, you can kind of follow this priestly line. And I thought about like giving a ton of different examples because you see some priests that actually get way off track in the Old Testament and some that actually call people back and actually fulfill these four requirements. And I thought that I'd just share one positive one. It's from the priest, his name was Ezra, which is actually like really simultaneous to, to Malachi. Malachi was just written after, just after um, Ezra. So you can see that all this corruption that takes place that Malachi is confronting was after Ezra. So if you read the book of Ezra, this was what's called the post-exilic period. So it's like the Babylonians had kind of ruled the nation and they ruled uh, Judah and Israel, kind of dispersed them throughout the land. And then eventually the Persians came and they ruled over Babylon. Over Babylon. And so then the Persians ruled that part of the world. What was great about the Persian kings is they actually gave freedom for the Jews to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And that's what, what, what Ezra is about. There's this, this freedom that they get to go rebuild the temple and actually start practicing the sacrifices again. And so in Ezra 1 through 4, they start building the temple. And if you were here with us on New Year's Eve, we talked about the book of Haggai. Because in Ezra chapter 4, they stop the work because they get intimidated by the people around them. And they stop building the temple. And then Haggai, the book of Haggai, he's the prophet that comes in and says, Hey guys, y'all need to start rebuilding the temple. And they actually obey. And then they complete the temple in the book of Ezra. And Ezra was a spiritual leader at that time. I would encourage you if this week, if this message inspires you, because I can't read all of it, but if you would go, go read Ezra 7 through 10, I'm going to summarize all three of those chapters and just show a few of the verses up here, and it's going to exemplify what a priest was supposed to do. We'll start in Ezra 7. You get a little bit about, about Ezra. This was Ezra, came from Babylon. He was a teacher. He was well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked for, and the hand of the Lord was on him. So some Israelites, including priests and Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, temple servants, also came to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. So this is Ezra starting to gather the Levites and gathering them to, to reinstitute the worship the way that God wanted it. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem on the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month. He arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for God's gracious hand was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law meaning he studied it, and he practiced it, he was exemplifying it, and to teaching his decrees and laws. Here was a priest who was modeling it. He was living upright. He was teaching what is true. And if you were go to chapter 8, I won't read from chapter 8, but in chapter 8, it's a really cool chapter of him gathering the people and getting people in place to reinstitute this worship. But then we get to chapter 9. At the start of chapter 9, you read this. 
After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples and their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Parasites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They've taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons. They've mixed the holy race with the people around them, and the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. Sounds very much like Malachi, right? He gets confronted with the same thing that God's confronting the priest with, but look how Ezra responds. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair out of my head and my beard, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles, and I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn, and I fell on my knees with my hands spread to the Lord Almighty, and I prayed. And man, if you just read Ezra 9, it's an incredible prayer where Ezra's confessing his sins and the sins of the people. It's this just giant confession and a pleading with God to have mercy on them. It said, if, it, if you've caught it there in the, the, first, the verses that I read there, some other people also were gathering around him. So Ezra's repenting, and now there's some other leaders who are also grieving with him. And you get to Ezra 10, and they have this time of prayer, and they decide what they need to do is they need to call a whole assembly. So they say, hey, all the Israelites need to gather, and we need to address this. And they have this huge gathering of everyone in Israel. And in chapter 10, Ezra says this. Then Ezra their priest stood up and said to them, you have been unfaithful. You've married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now honor the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do this. Separate yourselves from the people around you and from your foreign wives. And the whole assembly responded with a loud voice, you're right. We must do as you say. So here's a priest that's teaching truth, and he's turning people from sin. He's got integrity in the way that he's living his life. And if you read the rest of the chapter, it's really beautiful. There's actually kind of like, a, they said it was rainy season, so they couldn't stay all assembled. So they decided to come up with a small group strategy, dividing each clan and each family and appointing people to hold everyone accountable to do what they said that they would do that night. Amazing story. This is what the Levi covenant, this is what the priest should look like. Now, it's interesting, in our day, you might look at this passage and say, well, there's no more priests, so what does this mean? Well, you probably naturally, like me, think, well, this is the same posture or heart God must have toward pastors. And I started thinking, well, there's not really a pastoral covenant like there was with Levi. There is some of the same things that in the New Testament that you see leaders challenging others to do. So Paul, as an apostle, is actually writing Timothy, which is one of his disciples, who was a pastor of a church, and listen how similar the, the Levi covenant sounds to what Paul would actually tell Timothy as a pastor, how he should live and what he should do. This is 1 Timothy 4. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, preaching and teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given to you through prophecy when the body of elders laid hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourselves wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Sounds pretty similar, doesn't it? Like, watch your life. Watch your doctrine, the two things I mentioned earlier. It's, a, it's the life of the leaders. It's what they teach, that, that God has 